It's the Security Weekly News, and it's episode 296. Uh, I'm Doug White, and welcome to the week of 7 May 2023. We've got Poisonous Parsley, uh, ChatGPT, QR Codes, Boot Guard, Akira, Wanted Posters, Supercare, VPNs, Jason Wood, and more on this edition of the Security Weekly News. This is a Security Weekly production for security professionals by security professionals. Please visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to all the shows on our network. We interrupt our program to bring you this important It's the show that keeps you up to date on the latest security news twice a week. Your trusted source for accurate security information and expert analysis. It's time for Security Weekly News. Did you know that Active Directory has exploited a 9 out of 10 cyber attacks? With access to Active Directory, attackers can gain control of your network. To keep attackers out, you need to find and fix Active Directory security gaps. Meet Purple Knight, a free security assessment tool that scans your environment for hundreds of vulnerabilities and helps you fix the problems. Ready to reduce your Active Directory attack surface? Download Purple Knight, the number one Active Directory security vulnerability assessment tool. Visit securityweekly.com slash Semperis, S-E-M-P-E-R-I-S, for more information. Created in 2005 and hosted by security industry veterans, Paul Security Weekly is your source for in-depth coverage of the latest vulnerabilities, exploits, and security research. Our weekly security news discussion dives deep into the security issues we face today and potential solutions in a fun and lively atmosphere. Each week, we bring on guests from the security community to learn about their journey and discuss topics relevant to their work and research. You can also subscribe to our show by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe or look for Paul Security Weekly in your favorite podcast catcher. We've recorded a ton of content over the years, so we created Spotify playlists featuring some of our favorite episodes, including interviews with Marcus Random, John McAfee, and Chris Roberts, to name a few. You can find them at securityweekly.com forward slash starter packs. All right, welcome to Security Weekly News. I'm Doug White. Uh, well, spring is springing, uh, allergy season is on us, and it'll be 40 degrees before you know it here in sunny New England. So, uh, you know, enjoy. Well, you know, I, I thought I would lead with this story because I, I actually think about this all the time because it, it happens all the time, and it's QR codes. And, you know, you go in a restaurant, and they have a QR, or you get on the subway or anywhere else, and they have a QR code for the menu or for whatever, or the museum has a map, Anything you you have, it's like scan this and you know and, and that kind of thing. I see these things constantly. You need to pay for parking. Scan this code. It's stuck on a metal box on this on you know on Fifty First Street or something. And you know, but you know, as you and I would probably guess, these things are easily abused. And I, I know all of us think that way constantly. Uh, I mean, that's why we work in this field, right? We're just generally paranoid. But apparently, a woman in Singapore lost twenty thousand dollars, and I, they didn't say if it was Singapore dollars or U.S. dollars, but but whatever, it's still a lot of money. And it was a QR scam at a bubble tea shop. Uh, so there was apparently a sticker on the door that said, "Fill out a survey and get a free cup of milk tea." Okay, well, I wouldn't do it because I don't like the idea of scanning codes off a wall, even for a free cup of tea. But a lot of people would. I mean, a lot of people would scan it. If it says free burrito, free time, no, I don't know. If it said free burrito, I might scan it. But it is a, a free product. So what happened? Well, the link that she scanned downloaded a third-party app on the Android phone she was using to complete the survey. Okay, again, that's kind of what you would expect to happen, right? I mean, they're, they're not going to give you the free tea for nothing. 
So they're going to ask you to do something, complete a survey, watch a video, whatever. So, you know, you say, okay, well, you know, and I mean, it's how free product stuff always works, which is another reason I don't even like to do it if it's legit. But the app uh, apparently remained running after she had installed it and done the survey to get the free tea, which I, I was wondering, you know, was she suspicious when they didn't give her the free tea when she went? It didn't say if she actually got the free tea, but the app running actually managed to extract $20,000 from the, from the person's bank account that, that night. So basically what happened was the app just took over the phone and monitored what was doing because when you installed it, you said, okay. Uh, it took over the camera, it took over the, the clipboard, it took over everything on the phone, and so it was able to get, apparently, her credentials from where she used a banking app. Uh, and I guess she wasn't using multi-factor, or, it, you know, it would, I, I don't know, maybe it was able to do that, too. It, some of those things are really sophisticated. But there, there were other cases cited in the story where fake parking citations were being placed on cars in San Francisco that had a QR code to pay your fine. So it says, you know, you, I mean, if you park in San Francisco or New York, I, I've never parked in San Francisco, but I parked in New York plenty. And I know, you know, half the time you get a, a citation for some ridiculous nonsense, like, oh yeah, you know, the, they put a, one time I got a $500 citation in New York because when I parked a car, it was fine. Somebody came by and put a cone beside it later that they took a picture of and said it was illegally parked. And I got this big fine. Well, you know, I mean, the, the parking citation is a pretty good scam. So the ticket example had the wrong date on the citation, but, you know, do you really read those things that closely? Like, you know, consult your attorney. I mean, I think I'm one of the most wanted parking scoff laws in Paris. I, I, I don't even know how many citations I've had in Paris. But the ticket had a link with a QR code to a fake copy of the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency and apparently just gets you to pay the $60 fine to the fake site. Pretty innovative. So you might want to remind people about how easy it is to put a QR sticker over another QR sticker in a restaurant menu or just stick a, a QR code up on a wall outside of a restaurant or outside of a club or anything or, you know, just make a fake parking ticket with a printer and, you know, boom, there you go. So it is a readable article for just about anybody. Well, Intel is investigating a leak of private keys which are used by the Intel boot guard security feature. Now, if you aren't up on your, your boot up stuff, boot guard is an Intel feature that basically tries to prevent you from accidentally installing or an automated process from accidentally installing malicious UEFI firmware on, in this particular case, MSI devices. And now the boot guard process works on any hardware, but this was about MSI. Now, you've probably heard Paul talk about this kind of stuff on Paul's Security Weekly, and there's plenty of episodes where they were talking about UEFI hacks and firmware hacks and all that kind of thing. But this is all part of Intel's hardware shield, uh, which is called the hardware shield below the OS security package. And basically what BootGuard does is it validates the, the source code for a U, the UEFI before the CPU actually executes the initial boot block. So this is how computers start up. So you turn them on and there's a reference point to the storage of the initial boot block, which is the part of the linked list that then loads all the instructions for the, the basic UEFI boot up of the system. And so if a UEFI tries to be loaded, that's different from the one from a valid one, meaning the keys don't match or the certificates don't match, then basically that boot block process says, sorry, I can't load this, and it prevents you from accidentally loading these, these bootloader viruses. 
But in March, the money message extortion gang attacked MSI and claimed they stole 1.5 terabytes of data in the attack, which included firmware, source code, databases, and so forth. They immediately demanded a $4 million ransom from MSI, and MSI refused. So they began leaking the data on their leak site. Well, last week, they began leaking firmware source code for the MSI motherboards. Now, Binerly warned on Friday that this leak has the image signing private keys for 57 MSI products, and they went on and said that it had keys for Intel Boot Guard, including 116 other MSI products. Intel said they were aware of these reports and were actively investigating the matter. They did say that the Intel boot guard OEM keys are generated by the system manufacturer and that the keys being found were not Intel signing keys. So they couldn't just sign anything and send it out. I mean, I guess they could try, but theoretically boot guard would still block that because they don't have the keys for say, uh, I don't know, an Asus motherboard or something like that. Maybe. Binerly said that the leak may affect MSI devices using the, the Tiger Lake, Adler Lake, and Raptor Lake CPUs. So that's that's pretty recent. Uh, yeah, Intel needs a new naming scheme, right? Maybe try like Pons or Fins or Bogs or something for a while. Like, you know, like how about Raptor Bog or something like that? But anyway, Binerly claims that this is a direct threat to MSI, but that it could conceivably affect the whole Intel ecosystem, which sounded a little hyperbolic to me. I'm not sure that if the keys are generated by the actual manufacturer, it, you know, that it would actually compromise other manufacturers in the process, but they didn't have a lot of details about that. But it does allow an attacker to basically make a fake firmware update that is signed with the private and public keys that could be pushed out into, into the BIOS, and then that would load even though you have boot guard on that MSI motherboard. UEFI boot kits are really hard to deal with because they're being loaded before the machine actually starts the operating system, which means that all the, you know, the anti-malware stuff you have is not going to detect it. And then getting rid of it is not very easy because it's embedded in the system. There are ways to do it, but it's no longer something that's easy to talk, you know, my dad through trying to reinstall a clean UEFI setup on the system, if it will even let you do that. So some of the UEFI malware will prevent you from, you know, overwriting it and so forth. Um, Binerly's argument is that if all these keys are baked into Intel hardware, then they're not going to be able to fix this in any easy way, and the boot guard feature would then not be safe any longer. There is a list of all the affected products attached to the article, so check it out. Akira is a new ransomware operation that started in March of this year and already claims to have conducted attacks on 16 different companies in various industries. The new operation is not apparently related to the old Akira ransomware that we, I mean, you probably heard of back in 2017. They said it didn't really seem to have anything to do with that. Um, I, is an Akira a kind of dog? I, I think maybe. But anyway, Malware Hunter team shared a sample of the ransomware in this article. And basically, it, what it does is it deletes the shadow volume copies expected. It uses a PowerShell command to do that. No, no big surprise. Then it proceeds to encrypt the, a list of file extensions, which are your personal files. Uh, you know, that it's got this big, long text list of extensions. It skips files in the recycle bin, which I thought was interesting. It does skip like system volume info, Windows files, and all that kind of stuff, since you can just reinstall and replace those. And they're not very useful to the ransomware people. Um, all the files then have .akira appended to their extensions. Now, Akira then uses Windows Restart Manager to make sure that even if you have open files, they get closed and then encrypted. 
Every single folder has a copy of Akira underscore readme.txt, which is the usual ransom letter telling you how great they are and how they don't mean any harm. They just want your money, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but it, it does imply that the data was exfiltrated because it promises they will sell your data on the dark web and if in whatever they've not sold, they will publish on their blog. Uh, a unique negotiation password is provided to every victim, and the negotiation site that you go to has a chat system 24-7 uh, that you can put your password in, and then it allows you and encourages you to negotiate the ransom uh, that, that you have to pay. Uh, it sure beats tossing a million dollars off a bridge on the Pacific Coast Highway, but, you know, uh, they probably have better customer service than a lot of companies as well, from what I can see. But Akira spreads laterally to other devices, again, expected, and tries to obtain admin credentials. It did not say how they were doing that. I don't know if they're using Mimikatz or what, but they're using something to get admin credentials. Maybe they just try to find them or get people to type them in. It did not say. So, you know, if they do that, then they can ransomware your entire network. Akira has leaked the data of four victims on their site so far. Their ransom demands have been from in between 200000 to millions of dollars. They do say they will lower the ransom if you don't need a decryptor. Now how much would you pay? Uh, if you just want to prevent them leaking your data, they will take a lower amount and not provide you with a decryptor key. It doesn't say how they initially infect the victims, but let me take a wild guess, phishing. So you should definitely be prepared. Somebody at your, in your company may click that link right now while you're watching this newscast. Well, Aaron talked about this last Friday, but I thought it might be worth a re-mention. Google announced a new cybersecurity training program next uh, last week. Uh, this class they're offering apparently is a part of a new cybersecurity cert that they're providing uh, in, in conjunction with the Grow with Google initiative that they have. According to Info, it was built by Google experts and it's hosted by Coursera. has a seven-day free trial and then it's $49 a month. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's a pretty good deal. And a lot of people who are trying to get into cybersecurity, this may be a place to start. I mean, there's obviously many different options you can pursue, including universities uh, like mine. Uh, but that's a, you know, that's a more expensive and longer process. As Aaron said, check out John Strand's anti-siphon courses as well. They're very reasonably priced. And in fact, they're a pay-what-you-can site. Um, the Google courses are self-paced. They said they run for six months or something, so I, I wasn't sure exactly what that meant when it said six months for seven hours a day or something like that. So I don't know if they're like live and you log into them or whatnot. But you can watch Aaron do a more thorough job on last Friday's episode of the Security Weekly News, which was episode 295. Or you can just go to Google and check that out with the link uh, that is on our site. Well, the United States put out a $10 million bounty. <laughs> like, what? I know they do this, but it's just like... A $10 million bounty. Yeah. Uh, the, the bounty is on this Russian guy who has been, uh, and you, you probably know this person, who's been operating Try to Check for about 18 years. Uh, now, if you aren't familiar with Try to Check, it's a very, very well-known and infamous site that you can use to, to verify the validity of stolen credit card numbers and other data, uh, like bank account, routing numbers, and things like that. The man is named De Dennis Kolkoff. And U.S. authorities said that the site has earned at least $18 million to date selling access to this verification process. Now, apparently, Try to Check is your one-stop, reliable source for validating stolen credit card info and is used by all the big box crime stores on the dark web like Vault Market, Unixie, and Joker's Stash. 
try try to check domains were seized in the United States on the third of May by the Secret Service and the Department of Justice. So they all flipped over to that message saying this this domain has been seized. A warrant was issued for Mr. Kulkov of Samara, Russia, by the Eastern District of New York. So that means there's a warrant out for your arrest. The Department of Justice then proceeded to issue the $10 million bounty. Uh, Instagram accounts showed uh, Kulkov in a Ferrari. Uh, There were pictures of his family and so forth. So all you need to do is go and get him in Russia to make a nice payday. That sounds a bit daunting to me, but I know some of you will be all over it. Um, It did not say dead or alive, though. So I guess you'll have to actually bring him back on a plane. Like, make him sit in the middle seat, though. Like, don't forget. So this is, you know, hot tip. When you're taking a suspect on a plane, always fasten the the handcuff to your right wrist so that you can sit on the aisle seat. Yeah. And make them sit in the middle. And that, you know, and then maybe behind the person that's going to lay their seat back in your lap the minute the plane takes off. Remember those old, those old Lufthansa's where the seat literally, like I remember staring at some guy's bald spot for like nine hours one time. I kept sneezing and he got really upset. I was like, sorry, maybe raise your seat up halfway so I could actually use my tray table. But okay, whatever. I know it's a big thing. Supercare is a home care service provider and reached a $2.25 million settlement with 318,379 patients who were impacted by a 2021 attack. So that's about $7 a person. No, wait, wait, wait. The law firm's going to get 33% of that settlement, so that's actually 4.73 cents per victim. There, that's, you know. Considering that Supercare's annual revenues is reported at about $314.9 million by some random website I found, a settlement of $2.25 million, that's a pretty good deal for them. I mean, it's about like one of those parking tickets I got in France, right? So, you know, I mean, it's not very much money if you consider. Uh, the settlement did require Supercare to make enhancements to its cybersecurity and business model. Uh, they will also provide, wait for it, one year of free credit monitoring. I think my total count on that now is something like, you know, almost approaching infinity. But it says that patients who file a claim will receive a cash payment of $100. And a second tier of individuals may be able to claim up to $2,500 for out-of-pocket expenses tied to the incident. It basically used an example of, uh, they probably had this in a lawsuit, four hours of your time at $25 per hour equals $100, which is how they came up with that. I'm not sure how this works. Since if there's 318,379 victims and if each one is eligible for $100, that's more like $31 million rather than $2.25 million. Even then, it's still not that much, like 10% of their annual revenue. But it's, it's something seems strange with that report. The lawsuit said that Supercare violated the FTC Act by failing to maintain reasonable and appropriate security for members' personal information and that they violated HIPAA, because it is healthcare, for, by failing to timely notify failing to protect against reasonably anticipated threats and so forth, all the legal verbiage that you would expect. The hack occurred in July of 2021, and the attackers accessed the network and patient data, which included all sorts of personal information like dates of birth, insurance, your name, what kind of diagnostic data you had, so they probably know my cholesterol sucks, uh, and that sort of thing, I, and, and other sensitive information. It was a whole collection of things, and not to mention like uh, like actual x-rays and MRIs and all kinds of stuff were obtained. Under the settlement, they will be required to conduct pen tests, risk assessments, and then apply security measures. So it's taking lawsuits to get people to actually do security hygiene. They must also replace their endpoint detection and response with a newer tool and so forth. 
So maybe some good will come of these things as we start to see more and more lawsuits like this because basically companies are not going to fix these problems until it hurts. I'm telling you right now. I work with corporate for years. I've worked on boards and so forth. If you want me to be on your board, give me a call. But um, you know, basically you're going to get pushed back until such a thing happens that can be documented in court. That's my opinion. Well, this article is useful if you if you want to give it to your people or read it to your family. Uh, you know, I constantly tell people to use VPNs, and there's a lot of VPNs to choose from. I mean, so usually after I tell people to use VPNs, they immediately say, "Which one should I use?" You know, like like which VPN would you recommend? And since none of the VPN companies are paying me to recommend them, uh, you know, I tell them what I actually think. Uh, so for all the VPNs out there, well, there's a lot about these that are scary. You don't know what you're getting. Uh, you know, the department says some, this article actually says some lame things like there was a surge in VPN interest due to Utah banning pornography. I'm like, really? Was there? But VPNs have a lot more importance than just hiding your porn viewing habits or getting around state law. I mean, I, I don't use it for pornography. I use it to prevent my ISP from collecting data about my browsing or how, when I'm online and all this kind of stuff. Uh, because, you know, my ISP can see everything on the connected stream on their end if I'm not using a VPN. I don't know that they're doing that. They say they don't. But, you know, I don't trust companies because they say stuff like that a lot until they get sued. Uh, but it is pretty valuable data that, you know, I just searched for how to make a pipe bomb followed by a recipe for gumbo. That was actually my search history. <laughs> I was like, oh, really? Um, I was making a forensic case. Just, you know, I swear I'm not the gumbo bomber. And nor am I the Illinois enema bandit or any of that kind of stuff, although that was in my search history too. If you don't know what that means, you, you don't know about Frank Zappa and all that. But anyway, even just searching for a VPN is difficult. There's a lot of bad ones. Uh, the article has some decent advice like free VPN. I don't think so. I agree. And proceeded to recommend some of the cheap ones like iVPN. I use Hide My Ass, which is great if you're not trying to do stuff like get around Netflix viewing restrictions because it is so well known that they Netflix blocks uh, hide my ass VPN and won't even let you stream sometimes. But it does work great for all your legitimate use. Despite the article saying you may not need a VPN, I think you do. But it is a good user-friendly article that you are able to distribute. Uh, one of the very few pet cosmetic surgeons, he is in demand by all the stars. Whether Snoop's dog, Hulez, needs a nose job or Joe Biden's new pup needs lipo before the big show, He's the man you call if you have the big bucks. Please welcome Jason Wood. Hey, everybody. Good to be back with you all today. Um, I was looking around at, uh, you know, what to talk about today and and thought that, you know, we have been covering ransomware on the show for years. Um it is just so widely prevalent. Yeah, you know, I mean, Doug's already but was just spending a bunch of time talking about it again. Uh, just the fact that we keep finding these articles and bringing them up gives an idea of how prevalent this is. Uh, but quantifying the rate, you know, how much this is actually occurring can be uh, kind of a difficult proposition uh, since nobody has a complete picture of everything that's occurring out there. SD Media just published an article last Friday. Uh, titled ransomware watchers are finding creative ways to track attacks basically trying to get around or, or deal with the fact that you know they they only have their own view into ransomware attacks and and what data they can extract from those uh, from the information sources they have now i was particularly interested in this because i just came off about two and a half years of working on a team that did this and um 
reporting on ransomware uh, activity. So, you know, I have my own observations, but, uh, you know, before I, I guess I get into those, we'll, we'll talk about the article itself. Uh, Derek Johnson is the author of the article for SC Media, and he got right into it with his first paragraph, basically saying, um, you know, everybody has a general understanding that ransomware has gotten worse over the last five years, but no one knows exactly how bad it is. Um, public reporting is spotty because, you know, the victims aren't going to report on it. They're going to try and hide it, play it down, um, offer another year of free credit monitoring and hope the problem goes away, things like that. Um, and even if things do get reported, it's, you know, the information that's available is very, it's all over the place. You know, there's no standardization in how this stuff gets reported what data got collected um what data is being collected by the uh, or or uh being asked about by the the reporting party and and how it gets talked about that's just all over the place um so the article really gets into how are firms going about tracking this information and what do, what are they trying to do now there are organizations some of the organizations that have some of the richest data available to them are going to be firms that do incident response and they cite mandiant in particular uh, and, you know, CrowdStrike, where I work, has the same kind of view into it. You, you, you get called in to do uh, a breach response, and, and as a result, you collect uh, a lot. You get very familiar with how these groups operate. And um, so, yeah, that, that caseload really drives that. It's a, it's a very useful source of information. However, it's you know, restricted with all kinds of confidentiality requirements. So how do we... Uh, track that. What information can we track? Where can we put? Because you know you get stuff like um, uh, an intrusion is under privilege or something, you know, legal privilege or whatever. So that can't be tracked the same way, or or it has to be handled particular ways. Um, but still, you gather up all this information. As a result, you know these these firms are going out and and you see a lot of reports. Mandiant in particular is is always. Uh, releasing different reports on uh, things that they observe, the tools that adversaries are using, how do they uh, go about operating, and maybe what is the result of an intrusion, at least as much as they can say. Um, obviously, yeah, like I said, some difficulties around this. Confidentiality is a big one. Uh, victims really don't like it if they're trying to, uh, they don't want to be identified in a report and, and you know, have, have information clearly point back to them. Um, and honestly, um, you know, I, I've seen some articles that seem to, you know, well, this is the way it's happening everywhere. And, you know, IR firms can't, shouldn't, uh, say that, make a claim like that because they only have a view into what, you know, their caseload is. Um, so it's, it's, it's a good sample of what's going on, but it's hard to extrapolate that out to everywhere. Um. Uh, Fortunately for us, uh, for defenders out there, I mean, this is this is a a useful source of information as to how uh, you know what they can report on is a useful source of information as to how these adversaries are operating and and how they like to get into our environments. Now, if you don't have that kind of access, what do you do instead? Well, they cite recorded future uh, as you know how they, they're a threat intelligence company. They don't do incident response, so in their case. They have to uh, go out and do a lot of work to gather information about what you know from what's available online, and that can be news stories, um, 
from various outlets, but also going through and tracking data leak sites and and tracking the you know what's going on there. That may require some language skills as well. You know, if they, you get some of these firms that get into some of the the other side of this, we're not where they're leaking it, but you know, forum po forums for for selling access or services uh, to enable criminal activity. You know that that would possibly require some some language skills as well. Um, and so, you know, that's a lot of work to go out and keep track of this. In fact, I think Recorded Future said they had a couple of interns that spend like 15 hours a week um, just constantly trolling the news and looking for signs of, uh, of some kind of intrusion and, and documenting that. Uh, they have pointed out this is becoming a much more complicated uh, and possibly worse situation because in 2021 they had... 40 different leak sites that they track, and that number has increased over 150 now. Now, some of that can be due to group splintering. Uh, you know, individuals were all involved in one group, and that group broke apart, and everybody hangs out their own shingle and does their own thing. Uh, but still, it makes it, it makes it for a very, very difficult task to try and gather all this information up. And then you have the law enforcement side. Obviously, law enforcement is going to have their own insights into this as they respond to intrusions. Uh, with the purpose of putting out a an arrest warrant for somebody and perhaps a ten million ten million dollar bounty, I think it was. Um, and so, you know, they why is this happening? Why are we getting better more information out of law enforcement? Well, they've made this more important to them. This is a higher priority mission, and so now they're they're doing more investigations and doing more work to try and disrupt uh, these groups. And, uh, you know, on the plus side, I guess, if they can get a hold of somebody and get them arrested and prosecuted, they have the ability of removing people from the pool, um, though that seems to be slower than uh, more people are coming into it. Um, and, you know, I've deserved none. It seems to me as I'm as I'm looking through the news, I'm seeing an increase in rate around that. Now, the one of the problems that we run into with law enforcement reporting this information and in the article gets into some complaints from the FBI, for example, about how they they, they want to, to get the, the information pointed to them, reported to them directly, and everything they can. Uh, you know, they're after a criminal case, and, and that's a different priority than maybe a company who's just trying to recover. Um, finally, the article talks about cryptocurrency and how we've gotten better at tra tracking cryptocurrency transactions, um, and it's able to it's become easier to infer uh, some data related to ransomware payout. Payouts. Interestingly, a uh, firm named Chainless, Chainless, tech company names, um, reported in January that ransomware payouts dropped from $765.5 million in 2021 to $456.8 million in 2022. So that begs the question why is that? Are people uh, not paying out ransoms? Did we have a decrease? You know, the, the that the Ukraine, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine impact this? How did that, that pan out? There are a lot of questions about different things could impact the pace of this. Um, really, reporting on ransomware uh, and any other kind of scam or, or intrusion campaign is a difficult proposition to take on. Um, something that I have experienced, right? You've got to basically curate the information sources that you have to get this data together. This may be as simple as, you know, using your incident response or threat hunting caseload, uh, case which you know may not be very as simple as it sounds, depending on how that information is collected internally or, or stored 
um, or may get much more complex, obviously, like the recorded future example of trying to track all of this stuff down in open source information. Uh, once you get that a consistent flow of information, you still have to have a way of analyzing it, recording in a way that allows you to ask more questions of it, spot trends, uh, and hopefully report on it in a way that's meaningful to defenders and helps others uh, better protect themselves. Um, this is something that always has to be worked on because it, it, things are changing constantly, so that cannot stay static. Um, so you're just constantly evolving. Uh, for example, you know, when I, like I mentioned, I, I worked uh, at CrowdStrike. I was involved in, or I work at CrowdStrike, and I was involved in report writing three of the hunting reports, um, annual hunting reports that the the company releases. And, you know, that was difficult for us because we were immersed in this data every single day, but you'd have to step back regularly and take time to analyze, hey, what's going on? Has anything changed? Uh, start asking questions about that. You know, uh, why did this happen? We're going to have an internal debate about what's the best way to report on this. How should we evolve and how we're reporting on what we're seeing and make sure we're getting as much information to defenders as possible uh, that'll be helpful to them. Uh, so that they can try and spot this information, this type of intrusion in their environment. Um, and, you know, then you just get the, the questions that have come up because of that. You know, why did this change at this point in time? What happened? Was it because of our caseload? Was it because of some change in behavior? You know, you've got a sample and, and, and you're just trying to, to work with that as best you could go. Um, I could probably keep going on this for maybe another hour or so uh, because it's just such a rich area um, of, of information with lots of work to do. The SE Media article really only scratches the surface uh, of the work that's being done here and what it takes to track this type of activity. Uh, I think this is one of those areas where it's ripe for a lot of a lot more research um, and and both into gathering the information, but how do we disseminate the information in a way that's meaningful to uh, to defenders as a whole and uh, enabling people to keep these individuals out of their environments, keep them from having to pay a ransom or lose data or things like that. Uh, if this is something you're interested in digging into, this is worth checking out more because again, like I said, there's a lot of information available to us more than there used to be. Uh, but there's still just a ton more work to do. So go ahead and dig into that if that sounds interesting to you. All right. Thank you, Jason. And finally, is ChatGPT even real? Well, according to this report, ChatGPT is certainly powered by machine learning, as we all know, but those systems have to be steered by human workers, and they aren't being paid very well. NBC News reported that OpenAI has been paying droves of U.S. contractors to assist with what's called data labeling. And if you aren't an ML person or you haven't taken a bunch of AI classes or whatever, you may not know that data labeling is basically part of the training process. So if you want to train, uh, uh, what was what was the app on uh, Silicon Valley, hot dog, not a hot dog? Um, but, you know, basically somebody has to actually look, uh, a human has to look at the pictures and say, that's a cat, that's a hot dog, that's a car. And, you know, and that the, the level of granularity in that process gets more and more the further you go down that road. So you basically have to have people to actually look at the data and say, well, that's a pear or that peach could be a juicy fruit, but it could mean something else. I mean, that's how we all learn, right? I mean, my mother told me that parsley was poisonous. 
so that we wouldn't eat it off the plate. I, I thought it was poisonous until one night when I was in high school, I saw someone eat some and was thinking, would they actually put a poisonous leaf on somebody's plate in a restaurant? I mean, she told me later when I was a grown-up that it was in, that she thought it was embarrassing that we were eating the garnishes. I, I kind of liked it, but you know, she's like, "Don't put, don't eat that; it's poison." But anyway, thanks, mom, for my unhealthy fear of garnishes. Anyway, they are paying workers fifteen dollars an hour. Yeah, so that's like minimum wage here. But data labelers have to look at all the things and decide what they are and what categories to put them in and you know, and so forth in order to train the ML. I can only imagine the stuff they must be looking at. But basically, this is the basis of machine learning. And training is part of it. And con you know, considering that ChatGPT uh, uses so much stuff, I would presume there's a lot of labeling needs every single day. You know, hey, ChatGPT is partially poisonous to humans. ChatGPT said, quote, no, parsley is generally not considered poisonous to humans. In fact, parsley is a popular herb used in many culinary dishes, and it's known for its nutritional value and health benefits, at least not according to Doug's mom. Thanks, Mom. Well, I'll be at the Palmer House in Chicago for the Millennium Alliance meeting on the 16th and 17th of this month, and I will be at the Green Cities Conference in Augsburg, Germany on the 20th through the 24th of June. So if you're going to be there, stop by. And that's the news. Thanks, Jason. And I will see you Friday.